From the Great Yarmouth and District Talking Newspaper Association, welcome to Volume 40, Number 44 of Grapevine. This is online version number 32, recorded on the 30th of October 2020. In this week's news, MP Brandon Lewis is self-isolating, local factory has Covid issues, and on a lighter note, a report on the Pleasure Beach Halloween Fright Nights. Hi, I'm Graham, your presenter, and I'm pleased to say, standing in for another week's session, our newsreader once again is Margaret. Plus, Dusty pays tribute to the EDP, Margaret too lights the blue touch paper, and Julie on budgies and other animals. As usual, though, here's Margaret with the first part of the news. Hello everybody, I'm Margaret and I'm bringing you this week's news, as well as meandering through the Mercury of April 1969. And I hope we have some uplifting news this week. So if you're sitting comfortably, I'll begin. Brandon Lewis self-isolating after contact with positive coronavirus case. Great Yarmouth's MP is self-isolating after coming into contact with someone who has tested positive for coronavirus. Brandon Lewis, the Northern Ireland Secretary and MP for Great Yarmouth, shared the news in a tweet on Thursday. He said, I have been informed I've recently come into contact with someone who has since tested positive for coronavirus. While I do not currently have any symptoms, I am now self-isolating in line with government guidance. The news comes as record rates of coronavirus have been set in Mr Lewis's constituency, with Great Yarmouth hitting a new high of 137.9 cases per 100,000 people as of yesterday. The borough entered its seventh consecutive day with cases above 100 while indications for the next few days suggest the rise is unlikely to slow down. Coronavirus cases confirmed at Norwich and Great Yarmouth food factories. Environmental health teams are visiting factories in Norwich and Great Yarmouth after a number of coronavirus cases were confirmed. Norfolk County Council has said it's managing situations at two sites run by the Pasta Foods Business Group, the Pasta Foods Factory in Forest Way at Cossie and Snack Creations Limited on Pasta Road in Great Yarmouth. The County's Director of Public Health, Dr Louise Smith, said on Thursday, October the 29th, a number of those positive results were notified to us yesterday evening. She added that their environmental team are visiting the company, founded in 1956, makes pasta both in Yarmouth, where it runs a factory, and the UK's only dedicated semolina mill, and for the past four years in premises near the Norfolk showground, just outside Norwich. A spokesperson for Pasta Foods said, Pasta Foods and Snack Creations Limited have been working alongside Public Health England and Norfolk County Council, 
following a small number of employees who were tested positive for COVID-19 and did not come into work. The first case was three weeks ago at our Norwich facility and those employees who tested positive are fit and well and are now back at work, having followed the UK government isolation procedures and guidelines. We have a small number of employees at our Great Yarmouth facility who are currently isolating following positive testing. Norfolk County Council have been very supportive and commended us on our swift actions and responses and all of the measures that have been instigated to protect our workforce since the pandemic began. Chancellor urged to include A47 duelling in spending review. Norfolk leaders have again urged the government to invest in the full duelling of the A47 in a letter citing a need for levelling up agenda in the east of England. News the long-awaited project was not set to be included in the next wave of road schemes funded by Highways England was met with anger in the county last month. And last week MPs told of a no-holds-barred meeting with Roads Minister Baroness Charlotte Vere over the outcry. Now, councillors have written to the government to urge Treasury Ministers to include the project in the terms of a one-year spending review expected on November the 25th. The government has scrapped a multi-review of its budgets due to the coronavirus outbreak. In the letter, Martin Wilby, chairman of the pressure group the A47 Alliance, said there was strong evidence that the duelling of the road would contribute to the government's objectives. Councillors said the upgrade would unlock the 125,000 houses and 75,000 jobs planned along the A47, create an additional £330 million in value and generate more than £200 million in enhanced productivity. The letter, sent to Baroness Fear and Transport Secretary Grant Shapps on Tuesday, October the 27th, stated that, in the light of challenges, these schemes are even more important than ever. The impacts of COVID-19 have been disproportionate on tourism and hospitality, a key sector in the economy of the A47 area. Investment to improve connectivity would signal confidence in economic recovery and overcome one of the main barriers to assessing tourism hotspots in the region. The letter also highlighted the nationally important energy sector cited off the eastern coast. Busy road facing three-month closure for pathway works. An increasingly busy road will be closed for more than three months to allow for works on a shared pedestrian and cycle path. The job, managed by Norfolk County Council and costing approximately £365,000, will see the narrow path along New Road in Belton from Waveney Drive to the junction with the A143 widened and linked to the new cycle paths nearby. The Council has said that due to the width of the road and nature of the works, it will be necessary to close the road to through traffic while the scheme is underway. The road closures will be phased, with the first phase between the junctions of the A143 and Stepshort 
and the second between the junctions of Stepshort and Waveney Drive. A temporary pedestrian route would be provided along the southern lane of the closed road, allowing the highway team to carry out the work on the other lane of the closed road and on the path. The scheme is expected to be complete before the end of February 2021, weather permitting. There will be a two-week break from work over the Christmas period, during which the road will be open as usual. A diversion route will be in place throughout, while highway staff will be on hand to allow access for vehicles to the sports centre and properties within the closed section of road, the council has said. Overnight and at weekends, there will be access provided through one end of the closure only to allow vehicles to access the sports centre and properties within the closure. The council has said, Carrying out the work at this time of the year will help to minimise disruption to an area that can be particularly busy during the summer tourist season. Wherry Art raises funds for lockdown hit Nature Study Centre. Howe Hill Trust at Ludham is receiving a welcome boost from pieces of Wherry artwork from a retired teacher at Elton Broad. John Danes is a huge fan of the Howe Hill Environmental Study at Ludham and the Wherry Hathor, which normally has a summer residency at its moorings. So he has created a set of 25 limited edition stencil cut prints showing Hathor rounding a reed-lined riverbed near the centre, which will raise funds towards its education work. Mr Danes said, I feel strongly about the work Howe Hill does, introducing children to the environment and helping them understand the ecology we need to look after. He and his wife Helen have been visiting Howe Hill for more than 30 years to savour the historic house and grounds. He added, it's like a second home and I had my 70th birthday there because the view is stunning. The couple also have long-running ties with Hathor, Jonna's crew and Helen doing refreshments. He offered his artwork to the Howe Hill Trust charity, which has run the centre since 1984, taking it over from the county council. Thousands of children have learnt about nature during day and residential visits, but Howe Hill director and former grapevine reader Simon Partridge said, we have had no school visits during lockdown and none expected until at least next Easter, which means no main source of income and seven of our ten staff furloughed. Our only income has been donations from visitors to our gardens. So fantastic gestures like John's are so welcome and shows us that people care about Howe Hill and the work it does. The framed Hathor prints measure 31 centimetres by 38.5 centimetres and are £40 each. People come in for the banter. Gorston High Street traders reveal why shoppers love going local. Independent businesses on a local high street have issued a clear message to the community as winter approaches. Use us or lose us. Along Galston High Street on Tuesday morning, things felt busy and some shops had queues out the door. 
but there were still fears among traders that dwindling footfall could leave them struggling to keep pace with the business rates and the costs of COVID-proofing their premises beyond the new year. This Yarmouth Mercury campaign, Shop Local, is a plea to shoppers to consider independent businesses this Christmas in a bid to bolster our beloved high streets. According to research by the Centre for Local Economic Strategies, for every £1 spent at an independent business, 63p ends up back in the local economy, compared to only 5p spent at a national or international retailer. Richard Routledge, owner of What Is Hip clothing store, said, I think the difference between us and the big retailers is that coming in here is an experience. Of course, online is the way of the future, but if you don't shop local, you're condemning the high street to death. When people come into my shop, it's an occasion. It's about making customers feel welcome, chatting to them and getting to know them. You don't get that anywhere else. He added, when I set this up four years ago, it was to meet a gap in the market for over 40s who wanted stylish, retro 1940s to 60s clothes and didn't want to get everything they wore from Marks and Spencer. We get men in here who have never been shopping before and we talk about fashion, music, life back in the day. I had one lady tell me she couldn't get her husband out of this shop. Most importantly, coming here is fun. That's the joy of frequenting your independence. Generally, the business is doing well thanks to online as well as in-store sales. But we need footfall over Christmas more than ever. Likewise, the hair base owner Emma Jarvis said, Here at my salon, we're a family. We've got impeccable hygiene standards, lots of well-trained local girls and lots of regulars. It's been tough in recent months for my industry in particular. And as soon as people hear the cases are going up, the phone stops ringing. But I want to assure people that it's as safe as it is possibly can be to come here. We've got 31 hours of cleaning time set aside each week to make sure it is. I've sort of adopted a saying, safe is the new sexy. Besides, you can guarantee we'll be shut as soon as another lockdown comes. So use us while you can. Get your hair done locally, eat in your local restaurants, shop in your local stores. We really need it right now as small independent businesses are struggling. Derek Sharpin, who has run Keith's Butchers for 30 years, said it was a matter of using us or losing us. He said, we need people coming through the door. It's as simple as that. His colleague, Dean Knowles, echoed his boss. He said, those are the very same people who will say, it's a shame when local businesses shut are the ones who need to get out there and help make a difference. At this butcher's, you get the quality you don't get in supermarkets. We care for our customers and we know them. People come in here for the banter and that's what makes it a unique experience. Roger Webster, who co-owns Music Lovers with his Spanish rescue dog Seb, said he had often had people driving all the way in from Norwich to explore his selection of vinyls 
and to visit his adorable canine companion. I don't do online, he said. I much prefer it when people come in here in person. You see locals talking in the shop, asking each other about their day. And I get people asking to do swaps on books and DVDs. And I buy a lot of second-hand items from people direct. It's that banter and familiarity that we can offer. And you definitely don't get banter in Asda. Thanks, Margaret. More news shortly. Right now, though, we welcome back Dusty. Hello again, everybody. Lovely to be with you again today. And I thought we would just have a little look at the Eastern Daily Press because it is celebrating its 150th birthday and we get lots of lovely pieces from it. So one or two readers have been explaining the paper's appeal to them and so I thought I would just share these with you. One said, this is Richard Shepherd from Barney in Fakenham. The EDP is the most important newspaper for me because it is a fine reflection of the East Anglian temperament, that which looks for enlightenment along with tolerance. Our newspaper is never vulgar, and while it has all at its heart pride in East Anglia, that never descends to conceit or ostentatiousness. The East Anglian's inclination is to look the world in the eye and hope for understanding. His daily paper is an essential part of this vital process. Tolerance and open-mindedness have long been characteristics of the North and South folk. The University of East Anglia adopted the credo of do different for its precept to reflect upon our independence of spirit and our newspaper mirrors this with grace. That's a nice letter. And the next one I'm going to read for you is actually from a friend of mine who is the husband of one of the vicars in, in Lowestoft. And he writes, this is Alan Zipfer. And he writes, Reading the EDP has been part of my breakfast time since moving to Suffolk in 1977. I have witnessed many modifications to the paper, but currently there is a good balance between local and international news. Being born and educated in Norwich, I used to enjoy the Clement Court articles and currently look forward to the Derek James through the decades features. I lament the loss of the Tony Hall cartoons which were always very topical and humorous. Perhaps the obituaries of international figures who have strong connections with Norfolk and Suffolk, for example, Julian Bream, Oliver Cousin, could be far more detailed than they often are. We have always used the ETP to notify readers of family births, marriages and deaths. I hope that the journalists continue to aspire to the journalistic ideals of the late Sir Harold Evans, and I wish the EDP good fortune for the next 150 years. And I'll finish this little section with a letter that I actually saw today in the Eastern Daily Press, which is Thursday this week, and it's headed, Interpretations are welcome, 
and is by somebody called W. Wound from Wigan Hall, St. Peter. Approaching 50 years ago, as a recent legal migrant from South Links to an area not unknown to a youthful skipper, I learned the value of the EDP when a neighbour came to the door and inquired, Can you have a look at my old motor? She don't half come along a hide. I agreed that I would look, but it was two days later before I worked out what that meant. Had it not been for the much-anticipated Boy John letters, I may still have been a puzzling over that. First correct interpretation wins a wonderful breath of Norfolk fresh air, no mask. So, with them, we wish the EDP a very happy birthday. I know I love it, and I wouldn't have any other newspaper, because it's fair, and it tells the news just as it is without any embellishment and the articles are excellent so good on your edp that was something very different i want to share with you another article from the edp but it's by someone whom i admire particularly and i've actually had the pleasure of meeting this good lady she is now has now been awarded an mbe and is Her Majesty's Lord Lieutenant of Norfolk. And she writes a very, very good article headed, Let's celebrate our superb emergency workers above all else this Christmas. Recently, I visited an elderly cousin at the remarkable home in Norwich, where she is being looked after, with a tenderness, kindness, and level of gentle expertise that defies belief. Better still, that care is laced with a deft dose of humour and more than the occasional proffered glass of wine. Jean is 89 and until three years ago she fiercely was an independent lady. She never married but travelled the world, loved and respected in equal measure by generations of family and friends. Woe betide waste of any description. Every piece of Christmas paper was duly recovered, ironed, and would reappear, reappear the following year. My young, to whom ironing garments, let alone sheets of paper, is a totally alien concept, would shake their heads with bemused disparagement in a way only the young can muster. Three years ago, Jean was diagnosed with a neurological illness akin to motor neurone disease. With COVID restrictions in place, she was wheeled out onto the veranda for my visit, looking like a little trapped bird trying to emulate Michelin Man. Heavy rain and racing winds meant that she was clad in more layers than Scott wore in Antarctica. Muscle strength is now minimal and only the odd word is decipherable. And yet Jean managed to lift her face, wreathed in smiles, to the raging elements and mouthed the words, wind, rain, such joy. We stayed outside a good time the breathing in of the fresh air that she craves, and there was an easy silence. Developing 
as so often it does. I had time to reflect on and not only on Jean's time, but remarkable life, including paragliding in Sardinia in her 80s, but also on the level of grace and acceptance this once feisty, often acerbic, elderly lady displayed. As ever, she afforded me the space to dwell on the same grace, acceptance, pleasure in the very simplest of actions, lifting a face to the sun or the rain, whichever comes first, equal joy in each. I know I'm not alone in my grave concerns as autumn is upon us and winter approaches. This year, for many, joy of any kind will be hard to come by. Increased unemployment, loneliness, fear, poverty, cold and hunger will challenge the county to the core. Charities, many already perilously short of funds, are desperate to know how they will meet the need. Am I concerned about a pared-down Christmas? Not one jot. As Keith Skipper pithily observes in his wonderful Norfolk Almanac, people would get along better by spending less money than they haven't earned for things they don't need to impress people they don't like. I think there's some uh, a Shaw, Bernard Shaw connotation there. I seem to remember him quoting something like that. But what I am truly concerned for, she says, is the exhaustion of our emergency workers still reeling from the onslaught of the last eight months, barely rested, yet having to gear up again for the predicted COVID spike ahead. I met staff from all three of our hospitals last month. Their tales were harrowing to hear. Believe me, there is no place for those who choose to describe COVID as a disease of the mind. Such ignorant, insensitive claims are hard to countenance when story upon story of incredible courage emerge from our hospitals day in and day out. Norfolk's challenge now is to look after the needs of our emergency workers as robustly and generously as before. I have heard much of how the kindness of many made all the difference to medical staff at the end of an exhausting shift, the messages of encouragement and thanks, gifts, groceries, hot meals, all these and so much more were appreciated beyond measure. We must dig deep again for our charities too, but I have no doubt we will. It is what we have always done quietly across this county lifting our faces to sun and wind, storms and rain, just as Jean and her generation did before. We are good at that here in Norfolk, and we will not let them down. Thanks, Dusty. Here's Julie with tales of her childhood budgie and other creatures, great and small. Hello, everyone. It's really nice to talk to you again this week. Um, as you know, I love my nature, and... Of course, that encompasses animals as well, not just plants and stuff. And many of you will have the greatest companion of all in your wonderful guide dog. I'm in awe of such, each time I encounter such a magnificently intelligent, protective and loving creature at work. Today, I thought I'd share 
with you a couple of stories from my childhood. I would have been about three when, as the story goes, ignoring all my mother's protests, my Uncle Tom brought me a budgie. He was mindful that where we lived at the time, a little two up, two down terraced house in Norwich, there were no other children of my age and he saw this as a solution. So on this particular day, Joey, I think 99% of all budgies are called Joey actually, but anyway, Joey was duly presented to me in a shiny silver coloured cage complete with millet, cuttlefish, a pack of food and of course the compulsory swing and bell. Well, Joey and I hit it off straight away. Obviously, up until then, the only birds I had ever seen were those which frequented our garden. He was so different. Vivid blue and wing fellows with a snowy white head and black markings around his throat like a black beaded necklace. My father was not happy about him being constantly caged and therefore he spent most of his time having free range to fly around our sitting room. This was much to my mother's annoyance, as although she could appreciate his sentiments, said bird would poop all over the place, <laughs> preen, and, she, and shed little downy feathers everywhere. He was super clever though, and as I learnt my alphabet and nursery rhymes, so did he, sitting on my shoulder, with his little head bobbing from side to side. If my memory faltered, he would prompt me. <laughs> Fun times. Uncle Tom and his wife, Joyce, owned a small farm. They were hard workers, living in a prefab, and I loved nothing more than to spend time with them. Apart from the arable side, they kept chickens, horses and pigs and the animals always came first. They were fed, then we had our breakfast. It was nothing to have not only the dog and cats various roaming around the kitchen, but chickens also. They just wandered in and took advantage of any immediate scraps before they hit the pig's wheel bin. I can see my Uncle Tom now, old cloth cap with glossy peak, which was constantly dirty because he was pushing it back with his hands thick double-breasted black coat, which I think was once navy blue, and a hand-me-down from his grandfather, who worked the land in summer and went to sea in winter. His worn cordway trousers were tucked into knee-length muddy rubber boots. We didn't call them wellies in those days. All of this was finished by a huge hessian sack tied around his middle with string, and Auntie Joyce was similarly attired. It had to be said, though, that when they went out, they were immaculately dressed, especially Auntie Joyce. I recall her scarlet, red stiletto-heeled shoes, which I adored, caused lots of, Oh, please, Mummy, may I have a red pair next time? I needed new startrites. I digress. Dusty says I have a kangaroo brain, and she's right, really. <laughs> anyway, I had my own little shovel and would help with mucking out. Not big smelly stuff of course, more sort of wet straw. The pigs were my favourite, Gundy in particular. She was a huge breeding sow, producing litter after litter, who until I became too big allowed me to ride her. She trusted me to cuddle 
the little pink squirming piglets, helping them sometimes to suckle. Even as a child, I felt honoured at that, sitting inside the pen like one of her little ones. Helping feed and groom the horses, collect eggs, sorting them into trays for sale, finding dry sticks for the uh, evening fire, cleaning down shovels and forks, carrying, in my case, small buckets of water from the well indoors, were all in a day's toil, whatever the weather. Beginning the day clean, one scruffy, muddy, but extremely happy child would enjoy a snack lunch, finishing the day being scrubbed down in a tin bath heated on the fire. They'd known mod comms. Before, a hearty stew supper, then packed off into an old-fashioned iron bed, so high I had to climb up into it, but the softness enveloped me. No need for a bedtime story, simply out for the count, dreaming of what adventure tomorrow would bring. Waking at dawn, of course, thanks to the cockerel, and the whole process began again. At the end of harvest, a firebreak was ploughed and a ginormous bonfire lit in grateful celebration of another year's yield. Scheduled annually for the Saturday immediately prior to our church's harvest festival, surrounding families were invited. Straw bales were placed around the circumference on which we sat. Hot soup, crusty bread, sausages toasted on long sticks no health and safety, of course. I can't ever remember anyone ever being burnt. We were just taught to respect the fire. All washed down with homemade lemonade for the children. Their famous wine fermented from more or less anything they could find. Um, the beer made the whole occasion one of merriment, games and singing, accompanied by my aunt on the accordion, which Uncle Tom called her squeeze box. Tilly lamps, moonlight, and the smell of damp stubble enhance the entire occasion, and those aromas, even now, take me straight back there. Isn't it sad that modern children have so many restrictions? They're almost born young adults without the opportunity for real play and genuine enjoyment. They live in a protected, almost sterile environment. I'm so pleased to have had such a privileged childhood where we found happiness in the little things and money wasn't necessary to entertain. Climbing trees, learning to forage, plant and animal identification through tracks were all part of growing up. Learning the art of loyalty and true friendship, all of which has stood me in good stead for my entire life. Thanks to Julie, the pig cuddler. Probably similar to a horse whisperer, but um, no, perhaps not. Anyway, more news now with Margaret. Car smashes through hoardings at building site and ends up on beach. The car had to be recovered from the beach in Great Yarmouth after smashing through the hoardings surrounding the now demolished marina centre. Officers were called to Marine Parade in the seaside town shortly before 6.30am on Saturday, October the 24th, following reports of a single vehicle crash involving a Citroen car. 
Police said nobody was injured in the incident and the male driver was dealt with for a number of traffic offences. The vehicle sat in the sand for almost five hours and was recovered at 11.20am that morning. In a statement, Great Yarmouth Borough Council said, the vehicle came from inside the redevelopment site at the marina centre and went through the beachside hoardings, ending up on the beach. The driver was the only person involved and the security company on site took the relevant steps to organise the safe recovery of the car. The matter was resolved swiftly and the hoardings damaged repaired. Oh, and another car smash. Oh dear. And this one, the headline is, Car crashes into pub. A pub's front entrance has been left destroyed after a car crashed into it before hitting a pedestrian. Police officers were called to Nelson Road Central in Great Yarmouth on Tuesday at 9.40pm after a black Toyota Celica crashed into the front of the Albion pub, rolling onto its side and hitting a pedestrian. Paramedics and firefighters attended and both the pedestrian and driver of the car were taken to James Paget University Hospital in Galston for treatment for minor injuries. A spokesman for Norfolk Constabulary said the pedestrian was very lucky to escape without serious injury. As of Wednesday morning, both men remained in hospital. The car was recovered around 3am Wednesday morning and the fire service worked to make the building safe. It's scandalous. Protesters round on MP over vote against free school meal extension. Protesters took to the steps of their local MP's constituency office in a demonstration against the government's heartlessness over the free school meal saga. Great Yarmouth locals placed plates bearing messages of disappointment at the steps of Brandon Lewis's town centre office on Tuesday morning as they revealed they felt let down by the person elected to represent their borough. One of the plates read, 3,047 children in our borough are entitled to free school meals. You've abandoned them. Another said, you claimed £60,602 in expenses between 2019 and 2020. How many children could you have fed with that money? Charlotte Godden, Chair of Norfolk Against Holiday Hunger, was among those to attend. She came with her 19-month-old son, Noah. Brandon Lewis is the MP for Great Yarmouth, but he hasn't acted in its interests, she said. He should be ashamed of himself because there's 3,000 children in the borough who would have benefited from the free school meal extension over half term. It's heartless. I'm not expecting a U-turn from Mr Lewis, but as we've seen with George Freeman, there are Conservative MPs who disagree with the government. Mr Lewis refused to comment, but on the Andrew Marr show on Sunday, he defended his position and said the government had increased universal credit payments to help those going hungry over half term. But residents Josie Fitzgerald, Trevor Wright and Sarah Billiard said universal credit had been decimated by the government and wasn't sufficient for families to live on. Miss Billiard added, 
The money the government is giving to councils doesn't seem to be ring-fenced for holiday hunger specifically. Only some of it will trickle down and the children will be left hungry. Kevin Reynolds from Unite the Union Yarmouth branch said, We are fully supportive of this campaign. It's scandalous in this day and age that caring for our most vulnerable children is in doubt. This wouldn't have even cost that much to put in place compared to everything else the government has spent during the pandemic. Labour councillor Mike Smith-Clare, who helped organise the demonstration, said, The number of deprived children in Great Yarmouth is increasing, yet the local MP seems oblivious to this. Firefighters battle derelict care home blaze until early hours. Firefighters spent all night tackling a blaze at a derelict care home in Great Yarmouth. Eight crews were called to reports of a fire at the former Abbeville Lodge care home in the Sidegate Road area of the town at around 6.30pm on Tuesday. Crews from Great Yarmouth, Galston, Acol, Martham, Carrow, Wyndham, Lodden and Stalham plus the aerial ladder platform were called to the scene. The final team left at 5.42am on Wednesday after they were scaled back to four at 11.20pm. Norfolk Fire and Rescue Service said they will revisit the site later in the morning. During the blaze, neighbours were warned to keep their doors and windows closed. But a man who lives nearby, who did not wish to be named, said people had gathered to watch the unfolding drama along the riverside. The building was described by another witness as boarded up and engulfed in flames. A man who lives in nearby School Road said he went out into his garden for a cigarette and just could not believe the smell. The former care home has been closed since May 2019 after the Care Quality Commission found it to be inadequate in all areas. It had recently been subject to a planning application to demolish it and replace it with a housing development of 16 homes. Holiday Park Entertainment Team Isolating After Positive Coronavirus Tests Members of a Holiday Park's entertainment team are in isolation after staff tested positive for coronavirus. A spokesperson for Haven's Caster-on-Sea Holiday Park said immediate steps had been taken to isolate those affected and that its venues are subject to robust and frequent cleaning routines. They said, we can confirm that two members of our entertainment team have tested positive for coronavirus. We took immediate steps to isolate them upon symptoms being reported in line with government guidance and our COVID safe protocols. We don't want it. Objections raised over homes bid for village. A bid to build 15 houses in Philby has been recommended for approval, despite strong opposition among locals. 76 letters of objection have been written to Great Yarmouth Borough Council over the plans to develop a triangle of land off Pound Lane in Philby, a village of almost 800 people. The proposal, which was up for discussion on Wednesday, October the 28th, at a meeting of the Council's Development Control Committee, 
is for a mix of one, two, three and four bedroom houses, three of which would be affordable units. Adrian Thompson, Borough Councillor for the area, said, We don't want it. I'm not backing this as a Borough Councillor. Responses received by the Council during consultation on the plans raised the issue of highway safety, either through lack of a footpath on the road outside the site or that Pound Lane, a narrow road flanked by wide grass verges, is used as a rat run to access the A149. As part of the application, the developer is proposing to create a footpath for pedestrian access from the site to the footpath on Main Road. Mr Thompson said, It's dangerous, that pathway is inadequate, and we will be campaigning to get the plans refused. He also said the site is Grade 1 agricultural land, and to build on it would already go against council policy. The number of objections to the plan has been substantial, he added. Neighbours of the site have raised concerns over increased traffic, an overloaded sewage system and the urbanisation of the village, while the parish council also objecting has said that Pound Lane is too narrow and a rat run. A report prepared by planning officers ahead of the meeting, where the fate of the land will be decided, states the development is not an isolated one and is within a sustainable location with access to open spaces, education facilities and village amenities. There are no significant or demonstrable harms that outweigh the need for the provision of housing in a sustainable location. The officers recommend approving the plans. Philby residents are also opposing a bid to build 10 houses off Green Lane on a site behind New Homes facing Ormsby Lane, which have just gone up. A previous bid for nine homes was refused and another for 15 was withdrawn. And we've just heard that the plans to build the 15 new homes have been rejected by Great Yarmouth Borough Council when the scheme was discussed at a meeting of the planning committee held on Wednesday, October the 28th where councillors raised concerns over agricultural land being used for housing. Labour councillor Tony Wright asked, at what point do we say no more Grade 1 agricultural land? It just seems it fits when we want it to and when we don't we can just discard it. Conservative councillor Jeff Freeman added, we seem to lack consistency in what we do. I have to agree with Tony, if we're going to build on agricultural land, we can't just wave it in and out. But planning officer Rob Tate said, As you'll be aware, we don't have a five-year land supply. We have to weigh against the public benefits of the scheme, and we've come to the conclusion as officers that we can support it. In the absence of a five-year land supply, the application should only be refused if perceived harm demonstrably outweighs the benefits, he said. It is not considered that the loss of land outweighs the benefits. Labour councillor Trevor Wainwright said, It seems to me we keep refusing the applications. We need accommodation and houses in the northern parishes. 
I will be supporting the officer's recommendation to approve. But councillors voted to refuse the plans due to concerns, including fears over the state of the access road and junction and water safety regarding an increase in flooding in the area. And I'm off now for my meander through the Mercury. And this time, the following items were taken from the Great Yarmouth Mercury of April 1969. And the first headline that took my eye was, New Caister Flower Club Says It With Flowers. Colourful and ingenious flower arrangements by the newly formed Caister Flower Club brightened the foyer of the library. The arrangements varied greatly in shape, containers and flower content. A demonstration was given by Mrs H Daniels of Hemsby at the first meeting. Arrangements on display were by Miss P Woolston, Mrs L Stone, Mrs P Watson, Mrs S Davy, Mrs A Gadsby, Mrs H Lana, Mrs M Hubbard, Mrs J Bartram and Mrs J Mason. And I'm just going to put my two penneth in here to bring you up to date because last year, 2019, I was lucky enough to go along to Caister Flower Club. They celebrated their 50th anniversary. So we all trooped over from Galston to Caister and we had a lovely evening. And I can just say that both Caister Flower Club and Galston Flower Club, while very quiet at the moment, we will rise again, believe you me. <laughs> How much did food cost? in 1969. Eastman's in King Street were selling oven-ready chickens at two and eightpence a pound, braising steak at five and eightpence a pound, and lamb chops at four and tuppence per pound. The co-op had tins of red sockeye salmon at four shillings per tin, Frey Bentos corned beef three and elevenpence, and Andrex toilet rolls at one shilling. <laughs> Good old Arnold's again, had a spring sale. They offered babies cardigans at five shillings, cotton half slips for two and eleven pence, nylon shorty night dresses at eight and sixpence, and all wool pullovers at twenty nine and eleven pence. A GEC fridge would set you back twenty eight guineas, and an ultra nineteen inch television was sixty five pound. Yarmouth and Caister Golf Club had a new captain. Mr E Greenwood took over from the retiring captain, Mr H Clark. 65 members attended the annual dinner of Great Yarmouth High School Old Girls Society at the Imperial Hotel. Among the guests were a former headmistress, Miss R Brooks and Miss M Johnson. Now, if you wanted to look your best for this event, you could have a pin perm at Iris Hairstylist for 25 shillings. And a lady I will remember, <laughs> I'm sure most of you can as well. Miss Rosalyn of Anglia TV's Romper Room opened the 8th Gorston Trade Fair at Elmhurst Court, accompanied by Mr Percy Fields, Chairman of Gorston Chamber of Commerce, and President Mr George Holmes. Among the guests were the Mayor, Mrs Fleet, and her mayoress, Miss Attridge. Now, April 1969 saw the double wedding of two sisters at Holy Trinity Church in Caister. Pamela Harvey of Clink Hill Farm married Paul Wells, 
and Janet Harvey married Nicholas Ashton. They had a double reception at the Thurs Down Hotel, but separate honeymoons. Now, entertainment back in 1969. Jack Douglas was booked to appear at the Windmill Theatre for the summer season. Pop singer Mark Winter, comedian Johnny Hackett and Dora Bryan at the Britannia Theatre. Now, if you fancied a night out, the Royal Aquarium was showing Rex Harrison in Doctor Doolittle, while a Coliseum at Gorston had Kenneth Moore in Reach for the Sky. Now, this headline was, They'll fly 5,800 miles to a new life. Emigrating is just a word to most people, but for a Galston family it means a 5,800 mile journey to a small town near the Rocky Mountains in Canada. Mr Don Abbott, wife Yvonne and two teenage children leave next week. Mr Abbott was a messenger in the Borough Treasurer's Department at the Town Hall and is to work in the Canadian Pacific Railway office as a booking clerk. Now, if you wanted to hit the road on four wheels, Mad Egerton was offering a 1967 Daimler Sovereign in opalescent blue with a radio for £1,995 or a Morris 1000 for £365. Now, what were you listening to in April 1969? We had the Beatles singing The Ballad of John and Yoko, Tommy Rowe, Dizzy, Desmond Decker, The Israelites, and The Beatles again with Get Back. Dizzy Tommy Rowe there from 1969. Remember, remember, the 5th of November, coming your way next Thursday, but some memories of those gone by with the other Margaret. Well, hello again, everybody. And this time I'd like to share with you some of my memories of Bonfire Night. Yes, Bonfire Night. That's what we always called it, not Guy Fawkes. Of course, we knew the story behind it, the gunpowder plot, which was meant to blow up the Houses of Parliament. Mm. And we all knew the little rhyme, which went something like this. Remember, remember the 5th of November. Gunpowder, treason and plot. I see no reason why gunpowder treason should ever be forgot. But I'm not sure that we ever really connected with it. 
I certainly didn't. However, and as the autumn drew on and the nights grew darker, the thought of bonfire night and fireworks became more and more exciting. And when we were children in the 40s and 50s, there was no mention of Halloween and certainly no tricking or treating. I doubt if most of us had even heard of it. All that seems to have come much later, probably from America. But of course, a good while before the night itself, there was the serious business of saving up for fireworks. Loving mums and dads and grandparents always contributed, but it was all the more fun if you'd actually made the effort to save up a bit of pocket money to pay for some of the fireworks yourself. And in those lean post-war years, we understood the need for it, and it was good training. I don't think the shopkeepers were supposed to sell them before a certain date, and we could hardly wait until the day came when we could actually go shopping for our fireworks. They would all be displayed enticingly and safely under glass, and it was a source of both agony and enjoyment to choose what to have. They came in all sorts and sizes, from sparklers, golden and silver rains, Roman candles, which were inclined to spit and had to be treated with great respect, Catherine wheels and rockets, which were supposed to be placed in bottles, right through to the big ones, which seemed to us to be really grand and exotic. Now one year, I had a special firework, which was very special, and it was called a Sahara Sun. Actually, my grandfather bought it in Petticoat Lane in London when his boat was laying near the Tower of London, and because of that, I was persuaded without too much difficulty that the King had sent it especially for me, together with two big pine cones, which was I had to save until December for Father Christmas's reindeers. Anyway, after my two older cousins had carried the fireworks home for me, they were stowed away safely in biscuit tins and put somewhere out of my reach, although I was often allowed to take them out and look at them. Actually, the very first bonfire night that I remember was one that I didn't actually take part in, not directly anyway. Of course, it was November the 5th, which meant nothing to me then, as I was about four years old. And it would have been one of the first times that a bonfire night could be celebrated after the blackouts of World War II. And it was a day of unimaginable bliss, as my adored grandfather, who was home from sea, took me from Galston to Winterton to be shown to my great-grandmother, who had been bombed out and was living with relatives. To begin with, there was the great excitement of going for the first time on a red bus. At that time, all the buses I knew about were blue. Don't small things impress little children. But the journey home in the dark of the early evening on bonfire night was like a drive through fairyland. The whole countryside was ablaze with bonfires. It was enchanting. And most memorable of all was the biggest bonfire. It looked to me like a haystack on fire and I was told later on that it was on Ormsby Green. I've never forgotten that wonderful night, and in later years we sometimes spoke about it, and after all this time it is to me one of my most treasured memories.
Now, when we were a bit older, it was always a joy if bonfire night fell on a Friday or Saturday. No school the next day, so we could stay up a bit later. Needless to say, if it fell on a Sunday, there would not there, there would there would not be a fire or a firework to be seen or heard. It was always celebrated on the Saturday instead. And yes, I know that fireworks can be very dangerous. Although, thank goodness, I never remember any accidents among the children where I lived, but I'm sure they did happen. And I know that all the noise and flashes are terrifying to animals. But at least in those days, it was all confined to just one night. And so once it was over, pet owners had no more need to worry. Not so nowadays. But once tea was over and darkness fell, then it was time for the fun to begin. And in the cul-de-sac where we lived, it was an understood thing that we all went round to each other's houses. There was no set pattern to it, it just seemed to happen. And it didn't seem to matter too much if there were no actual bonfires. We didn't all have them. It was the fireworks that were the main attraction. And mine were lit in my grandparents' back garden. Mum and Dad would arrive in good time. And one year, my big brother Douglas, who was on leave from the Navy, turned up, much to my delight, complete with bell-bottom trousers and a box of fireworks labelled from the Hong Kong Crackerjack Factory. <laughs> Blue touch paper was lit, always by the grown-ups, of course. Rockets were sent soaring up into the sky, and Catherine wheels were pinned to the trellis. Wonderful colours, wonderful flashes of light. And when at last that part of the evening was all over, away we children went to the other gardens, us little ones safely in the care of the older ones. However, I do remember one occasion which I never told my parents about. One of the boys in our gang, not much older than I was, had parents who were much more relaxed about safety than mine were. And they let us loose in their big garden with fireworks and a box of matches and left us to get on with it. It was all great fun and thankfully no harm was done. But I was a bit disconcerted when a banger, which I think was called a jumping jack, chased me down the garden path with much noise and smoke. <laughs> this was a new experience, as I never had bangers, so I was caught on the hop, literally. Fortunately then, the big boys arrived, and they were having a huge bonfire on the waste ground, which we called the field. So I retreated, thankfully, with a couple of others, to the safety of our end of the road. Now, oddly enough, I don't remember that we had many actual guys. I can only remember some years later, when I felt I was a bit too old to think about making guys, that some of the younger children did just that. Now, this guy was a real work of art, and for some reason a cigarette was stuck in his mouth. He was carried around on an old wooden kitchen chair to be admired by all the neighbours, and being tall, I was roped in to help carry him. But, of course, as we've said before, nothing stays the same, and in time, the big organised displays took the place of fun in the garden, and more people had the cars to get to the displays. 
it was probably a good thing in many ways and certainly much safer. But I do remember that the very first one which took place on one of the country estates not far from us caused a massive tailback on the main road as dozens of cars converged on the only entrance to the lane which led to the area where it was all about to happen. And it was useless for people who lived nearby to protest that they'd been at work all day and just wanted to get home. They couldn't. They just had to sit it out and like it. Goodness knows what time the display finally took place. But at that time, in the 1970s, there were still families who liked to celebrate Bonfire Night in a traditional way. And where we lived, not, from, not far from where I'd first grown up, there were several families and some older people with grandchildren. So as our back gardens converged, it was a joy to join in. And we always saved our garden rubbish to burn on Bonfire Night. In those days, nobody gave much thought to the environment, so we had the fires. And just as we had done in the previous generation, the children around us had a lovely time. One year, just for fun, I bought a packet of sparklers and lit them by what was probably our last bonfire. After making sure that our cat was safely indoors, with a comforting saucer of milk and plenty of fuss from Mum, who was his devoted servant. So we'll leave that with the happy days. Thank you again for listening and please do stay safe. Right, it's thanks Margaret and hello Margaret. Killer Clowns in the Funhouse. Great Yum of Mercury's Liz Coates reviews the Pleasure Beach's first foray into Halloween Horror Nights. No one has been killed on this ride in the last half hour assures a half-dead gentleman ghoul as we shuffle forward in the queue. Buoyed by this proud safety record, we board Disco and are spun fiendishly for a few minutes while the costumed character, who is totally committed to his role, shakes his stick at another victim. Great Yarmouth's Pleasure Beach has for four nights been transformed into fairground frights its first full-on foray into the world of scare attractions. And as everyone who has ever seen Scooby-Doo knows, theme parks are the perfect Halloween habitat for all sorts of weird clowns, veiled Victorian widows, zombies, vampires and chainsaw-revving baddies. And the funfair has set them all free to wander in the park amid bursts of fake fog. It's all great fun, of course. We visited on the first night, Wednesday, and were greeted by a pair of gloomy twins holding hands and staring blankly. A third muttered madly into a severed doll's head. It was quite the welcome and saw my 15-year-old daughter and her friend keep their distance giggling nervously. As a stand around mum, whose role was mainly holding phones and buying doughnuts, I was easy pickings and was got many times by actors who seemed to appear out of nowhere as you rummage in a bag, much to the amusement of everyone else walking about. With screams rising up from the park, it was hard to know if it was something to do with a ride or one of the actors jumping out at someone. And from time to time, you will see an axe murderer chasing a teenager encouraged by the whoops of their mates. 
As someone who finds fairgrounds pretty terrifying at the best of times, I braved the not-so-fun house, thinking it was probably something I could handle. You enter and are greeted by spooky clowns who loom out of the foggy gloom. At times you can barely see your hand in front of your face and it's pleasingly scary. Embarrassingly, I held my hands up in horror and screamed at what turned out to be a young lad with his mum. <laughs> the dark can do that to a person. Elsewhere around the park, there are photo opportunities with stocks and seaside style cutouts, skeletons, ghostly animated figures and impressive holographic projections. There were queues for summer rides, but not too long. And in all, the girls reckoned they got on at least 13 over the three hours between 5 and 8 p.m. Visitors are also encouraged to dress up, some giving the excellent scare actors a run for their money. Overall, the actors are all great and stay in character completely, moving about in unexpected and scary ways, banging props and interacting at a distance. In terms of COVID, the park felt safe with regular cleaning and hand sanitising. It is more fiendish fun than actually being terrified and there are plenty of loping ghosts and ghouls to navigate. Where there is a queue, you are generally entertained. Judging by the reaction of people in the park who all seem to be enjoying the white knuckle nightmare, this Halloween newcomer is here to stay. And the event runs until Saturday, October the 31st. Well, on that note, <laughs> I hope you have a good night's sleep. I don't think I will. <laughs> and that's all the news for this week. Thank you for listening. And whatever you're doing, keep well, keep safe and be kind to yourself. Well, that's all we have for you for this edition of Grapevine. Grapevine, volume 40, number 44, is copyright 2020 of the Great Yarmouth and District Talking Newspaper Association. The content in the main is adapted from the publications of Archant Limited and is used with their consent. However, the Great Yarmouth and District Talking Newspaper Association accept responsibility for editorial decisions made for this recording. Your newsreader next week will be Aileen and we hope that you'll join us once again for our weekly look at your weekly news. In the meantime, from Margaret 1, Dusty, Julie, Margaret 2 and myself, it's bye for now. Have a great week and keep well and safe. Bye. Bye.